Um, so I've got my, my notes, and I'm going to go by them, best of my abilities. Um, we talked last Sunday a little bit. I made mention of the fact and pointed out something that everybody knew and realized after I brought it out was that every family in our church family, 2021 was a year of position. It amazes me the more that I think about it, when I think about all the things that each family's gone through and the prices each family's paid to get into the position that they are in God right now in the kingdom. Um, but what I want to talk about tonight is some of the next phase because between the positioning and the performance of God's will and purpose in our life, there is a process referred to as a sifting. So what I want to talk about tonight is called and positioned, but before your harvest, there is a sifting. Now, I've already said this, and I won't back down from it. I know what I hear from God, and when I do, I'm not afraid to say what I know from God. 2022 is the year that every family in this church family will receive a harvest. Now, when that harvest comes can be influenced by how long each individual and each family stays in the sifting process that must happen before God performs His will in our lives. And I'm, I'm going to, I'll explain all this. Matthew 26, we're going to read Matthew 26, and as I said, since we're a group of thinkers, I'm going to do a little bit different tonight. I'm going to read through these verses. Uh, and then we're going to have another reading in Mark 16. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what is on my heart. Matthew 26 and verse 69. It's a very long chapter. Called and positioned, but before your harvest there is a sifting. Matthew 26 and 69. Now Peter sat without in the palace. He was outside. They had already taken Jesus, and a damsel came unto him, saying, You were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before everybody, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And when he was gone out into the porch, he left. He got away from those people. Another lady saw him and said unto them that were there, Hey, this guy was also with Jesus. And again, he denied with an oath. This time he swore. I don't even know Jesus. And after a while came unto him that stood by and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them. Check this out. Because your speech betrays you. That's what the word bereath means. It means betrays. So he said, We know you had to have been one of these people with Jesus because the way you talk gives you away. So Peter understanding that these people had heard him talk and they knew by some way that he talked he must have been with Jesus Peter said well I know what to do to make sure they they believe me that I don't know Jesus guess what he decided to do began to curse and swear saying I don't know Jesus so apparently all these people knew that if you cuss and swore you don't know Jesus right. Apparently, Peter thought the way to make these people know that I don't know who Jesus is, is to start cussing and swearing. Jesus don't like potty mouths. That's an infomercial. I ain't going to talk about that tonight. <laughs> and immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, 
Before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Matthew 16 and 1. I'm sorry, Mark. Had to go the wrong way, didn't it, Mom? Yep. Mark 16 and 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. They're, they're going to Jesus' tomb. Again, where are the men? Good grief, this is embarrassing. It is, it's embarrassing. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. That's early. And they said among themselves, well, who's going to roll away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? See, they knew that problem was waiting for them, but they went anyway, didn't they? Mm -hmm. And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was a very great stone, huge, real heavy. <clears throat> and entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were scared. He was an angel. That would freak you out. You're going to look for a dead Jesus. You don't find any Jesus. You find a living angel. And the angel said unto them, Don't be scared. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He's risen. He ain't here. Look, here's a place where they laid him. And I love this verse. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter. <laughs> that he See, Peter was still in the decision-making process. Am I going to? Can I come back? Will I come back? Because the angel said, go tell his disciples. And while you're there, tell Peter too. That he goes before you into Galilee, and there shall you see him, as he said unto you. Okay. Now I'm going to use for my first example tonight, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Called, positioned, but there must be a sifting. An angel was used to call Mary. Mary answered the call. God positioned her. God performed His will through her life, and the harvest was Jesus. Now answering her call cost her almost everything. For six months, nobody believed her. Not even her fiancé, Joseph. And he wouldn't have believed her if God hadn't visited him in a dream. Answering her call cost her her reputation, her fiancé's trust for a while, and her parents, if they were alive still. And how do I know that? Where were they? Y'all ever seen an expecting, excuse me, I'm talking to two grandparents here that remember how we all, three of us, that remember how we behaved when we were expecting our grandbaby, right? Yeah. Do you remember how we behaved once it got here? For some reason, all the rules that were in place for the kids, about 90% of them didn't count no more. And all of a sudden, a lot of things that we really didn't realize we're special when our children were growing up. Now, as our children in the blink of an eye were gone, we realize now how precious those times were. So we had nothing more in line, nothing at the top of the list above what we wanted to do with our grandchildren because we were excited. But you never hear about Mary's parents. So if they were alive, they shunned her and their grandbaby. The first time Mary found anybody that saw her anointing, and believed in her calling was when she left her hometown and went to visit her Aunt Martha. Now hear me tonight. So, sorry, did I say the wrong Elizabeth. name? Who? Elizabeth. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was checking. She went to see her Aunt Elizabeth. 
Jason, Martha, <laughs> hear me tonight. Sometimes you got to get out of your own forest before anybody can see you for what you are rather than who you are. Right. Even Jesus's family and hometown refused to accept him for what he was, even though they admitted they saw it because they couldn't get past who he was. Right. Mark 13, Matthew 13. Boy, I'm having name issues tonight. Matthew 13 and 54. When Jesus was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished, 13 and 54, and said, where did this man get this wisdom and how is he doing these mighty works? See, they saw and even acknowledged his wisdom and the power of God working through him, yet they could not, they, they couldn't accept what he was because of who he was to them. This is why we have some of the issues we have with our families. They, they can't see us for what we are because of who we are to them. And sometimes that can be discouraging because it can downplay our, our, what our position or what our usage is in the kingdom. They can downplay our relationship with God because they can't get over the who we are to them enough to see the what we are. That makes sense? It's, it looked, it even proves it. So it's right here. They said, hey, we see the wisdom. We hear it. And we see the mighty works. But in 55, they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Surely a working class's uh, man's son can't do all this. Isn't his mother's name Mary? And his brothers James and, and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? So much for Mary being an eternal virgin. What do they do? Adopt all these kids? Whence then hath this man all these things? They were offended in him. That's what the Bible says. But Jesus said unto them, look at this. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And you can take the word prophet out there and put whatever your role in the kingdom is in that very sentence. And it's still true today. And look how it ends. He did not many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. Yeah. Not their unbelief that God could do such things, but their unbelief that God could do such things through Him. Right. They couldn't accept what He was because they knew who He was and they could not separate the two. Now, when there's a calling on one, there's a calling on both in a marriage. And sometimes... One of the two does nothing but all the stuff that's done behind the scenes. I think of Joseph, Mary's husband. His wife was the anointed and the appointed. He was the valet and janitor, road crew and chief of security. But there's not one word about any jealousy or him begrudging her the spotlight while he did everything behind the scenes. Right. And hear this tonight. Even though he did all the heavy lifting and had all the jobs nobody wanted, there is no Jesus without him. Right. Ain't everybody going to be a preacher in a pulpit? Ain't everybody going to be a, a Beth or a Jimmy or a Stacy that can get up and worship and bring everybody into that presence? Ain't everybody going to be able to do that? Right. Those are the things we think about automatically when we think about the things needed in a church. But I'm here to tell you tonight that there won't be a church without people willing to do the things behind the scenes, outside the spotlight, and do them with a zeal and a love for God and a good attitude. Right. Amen. 
You will probably be amazed to know that at one time or another, at every church I go to preach at, I will preach sooner or later about the ladies' bathroom. Isn't that right? Yep. <laughs> and one of the reasons that I do that, you're not going to believe this, but all the way back in a... Ooh, I like this. I'm old enough to say at the turn of the century. All the way back before the turn of the century, when we were pastoring in Harvard, Illinois, I read a statistic taken a survey taken of women and the question was it was a Christian magazine and the question for a thousand women was what is the most important thing in a new church when you go to visit that will determine that you will never go back there would you believe that almost every single one of them said the bathroom yeah. the bathroom so guess what the first thing was that I cleaned every Sunday morning, me or Kitty or me and Kitty, depending on how long we was running behind, we cleaned that women's bathroom. If the sanctuary didn't look perfect, that lady's bathroom was clean. That just shows you how important things behind the scenes are. There is no such thing as a little job in the church of the living God. There's no such thing as anything that's done in it that's not important. And there's no such thing as an unimportant person. Right. Hmm. There is no Jesus without people behind the scenes. Right. Back to Joseph. There doesn't have to be a lot written about him for me to know he was a man who was confident. You know, while I was writing this, Beth, I kept thinking of Nelson. And I'm going to tell you why. There's not a lot written about Joseph. But it doesn't take a lot for me to know this was a man confident in his own manhood. He wasn't insecure because his wife was the center of attention. He loved his wife and he loved the way God used her. Yep. How do I know that? Because Joseph did whatever was required of him to get his wife in whatever position she needed to be in for God to use her. He did whatever had to be done to get her in position for God to perform His will through her in order to have a harvest. Now that is a man's man. That is a man of God. And that reminds me of all the times that I've seen Nelson lugging that keyboard up here. And I've seen Nelson bringing that music stand up here and setting it all up and then quietly going to the back of the room. And I know he doesn't begrudge his wife being in the spotlight and being used by God because I watched the man bow his head with his eyes closed and worship God. This man, Nelson, as well as this man, Joseph, are able to separate their wives from who they are to them to what they are in the kingdom of God. Amen. And that is not an easy thing to do. It's not. I'm telling you, it's not an easy thing to do. And then Joseph, when he does everything necessary for God to use his wife, and God does, you never hear about him again. <laughs> now that's a man who understands what he, that he and his wife are one. That's a man who doesn't feel threatened or insecure about God using his wife. Because when you understand that you and your spouse are truly one in the eyes of God, you know there is nothing they can do for God or in God that won't bring a blessing to you too. That's a man. I have a lot of respect for my brother Joseph and a lot of respect for my brother Nelson. But the two cannot be separated, even if one is in the background. And even if one doesn't always see what their spouse is in God, because there's so much of who they are to them. I'm here today to tell you right now, I ever get up the pulpit anywhere in the whole world and look like I got half my act together. It's because of her. 
She always tells me all the time. I'm gonna tell on you. Tells me all the time. She she been down on herself and she feels like well she's not doing nothing. Or you know, I'm not doing anything, I'm not contributing, I'm not contributing to the church, I'm not contributing to the kingdom. And I'm looking at her and saying, You're kidding me? When I get time to study with the whole world shut out. It's because she shuts the whole world out, so I got time to study. When I have to be on the phone with somebody and something serious is going on, we can be in the middle of something. But when it's a 911 and the phone rings and I can tell it's a 911, I'll say, hon, it's a 911. You know what she does? She says, go. Two, a one. Anything that I do, any soul I ever helped, even one I owed in their walk with God, She's going to get a harvest anytime this lady right here has ever sang the glory down and somebody left stronger in God. Nelson has got a reward coming. Joseph has his reward. Amen. And you don't even hear no more about him. He's just gone. Did his job. Faithful servant. Everybody say positioning. Positioning. Oh, that's pretty good. Now the position is after the call, but before the performance. And for numerous reasons. Now we're going to get into the nitty gritty. It is one of the most crucial parts to the whole process of being who you're supposed to be in God and do what you're supposed to do in the kingdom. Firstly, this is where most people get stalled out and never become everything they're intended to be in the kingdom. Or this is where they quit God completely. And if that bothers you, Beth, you can shut the door on them. It's up to you. Why? Why do most people get stalled out there? And why do most people even wind up quitting there? Here's why. In order to be obedient and move into God's positioning, you got to give up yours. Mm -hmm. huh. This means more than a church position. I'm talking about life position. Moving into God's positioning for His will and His purpose in your life can mean everything from losing friends, changing church families, careers, even addresses, sometimes hundreds of miles away, amen, uh -huh. or in the case of those called to foreign fields, even nations away. Giving up your positioning and moving into God's position for you in your life always means handing over the reins completely and saying, I'm yours, Lord. Try me now and see. See if I can be. This is the part that hurts. Completely yours. Yeah. It means moving out from behind the steering wheel of your life. Letting God in the driver's seat. It means becoming the passenger and letting God drive. Yeah. I got a cartoon I keep on my phone to remind me every now and then. And it shows a man driving in his car. And it shows Jesus next to him. And it shows Jesus looking over at the man saying, Hey, remember when you used to let me drive? Mm -hmm. Ouch. Now that's some tough stuff. But that's the end of positioning. And just as in Jesus' day, there are few that make it that far. What did He say? Pray the Lord of the harvest and He would send forth laborers. The reason few make it is before we can ever get to the place where we can be positioned for God to perform His will and purpose in our life, He's got to trust us. And before He can trust us, He's got to train us. Right. And even once we've been trained, notice I said, He's got to train us. I'm not talking about the all-powerful man of God tonight. I'm talking about the all-powerful God right. of men and women tonight. But even once we've been trained, there's still one more thing He's going to do. One more thing He's got to do. 
before He can trust us to wield the full power of God. And if you have ever wondered why, you hardly ever see the full power and demonstration of God. It's because before that can happen, we have to allow ourselves to be sifted. Uh-huh. Now let this filter through your, through your spirit. Peter had been trained for three and a half years. But even after three and a half years of being trained by Jesus Himself, He still had to be sifted. He was trained for three and a half years straight. He was sifted for three straight days. And even though the three and a half years of training was anything but easy, leaving his career, leaving his home, leaving his family to answer the call, it wasn't nothing compared to the three days he was sifted. Know how I know? Because in over three and a half years of sacrifice and work and training and learning to completely trust God, Peter never quit one single time. But before he even finished his first day of sifting, he denied he ever even knew Jesus three times and quit. Sifting is tough. Sifting is done alone with nobody to lean on. And it can only be done with soul-squeezing pressure. Pressure that makes you feel all alone, even when your spouse is right there. Pressure that makes you feel like you're going to die and can even make death seem attractive. The reason sifting is done with agonizing pressure is because the purpose of sifting is to squeeze any and all bad attitudes and unaddressed character flaws out of the places that we humans are so good at hiding them, sometimes even from ourselves. And that extensive soul-wrenching pressure will bring them up to the surface because if they remain hidden, unaddressed, and uncorrected, and we still wield the power of God, we can kill people. Mm-hmm. Kill them. Truth be told, I'm going to confess, the reason so many people receive wounds in the house of their friends inside the church is because many pastors today put people in position to wield the power and authority of God before they're ever sifted. And those flaws come out through the pressure of spiritual responsibility and hurt innocent people. One of the reasons this happens is because we pastors can get impatient or discouraged waiting for somebody to help lighten the load a little bit. And we get tired of watching people that we know can help. We get tired of watching them quit during their sifting and start handing out responsibilities before they even start it. Sifting is necessary for all of us. And for the good of our own soul and the souls of others, we need to be sifted. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus warned Peter, Satan had asked to sift him, and Jesus had said yes. When Jesus prayed for him, he didn't pray for him to escape the sifting, he prayed for him to endure it. Why? 
Because Jesus knew that before Peter could be trusted to preach the one and only New Testament plan of salvation and be an authority over thousands of new converts that were going to come on the very first day, he still had some stuff way deep down inside that needed to be brought up to the surface and dealt with. How was that obvious? Because before Jesus and Peter and James and John even went to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told all His disciples, He said, Every one of you are going to desert Me. And Peter stood up, puffed his chest out, I'm sure, and said, All these other bums might desert you, Jesus, but I'll ride or die. I will die for you before I'll desert you. Now Peter meant it with his whole heart. And Jesus knew he did. But Jesus also knew the kind of dying Peter was going to have to do wasn't the kind of dying he was talking about. What do I mean by that? Peter proved he would die physically for Jesus when the soldiers ambushed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and even though they outnumbered them several times over, and even though the soldiers were professional killers, and even though Peter was the only one fighting back, he managed to take a professional soldier's sword away from him. That's no easy feat. And tried to kill one of them. He missed and only cut the man's ear off. But you don't cut an ear off going sideways. You cut it off going down. Peter wasn't trying to cut the man's ear off. He was trying to split his noggin like a watermelon. <laughs> Peter needed to learn to die to his pride. He lived up to his word. He was up for defending Jesus and dying if he had to. But that wasn't the kind of dying Peter needed to do. The kind of dying Peter needed to do was dying to pride and confidence in self. And it started the very minute Jesus rebuked him, forever swinging the sword, reached down and picked up the severed ear and put it back on the man's head. The kind of dying Peter had to do only comes to the sifting that pressurizes your heart, soul, mind, spirit, and character until anything and everything that is buried deep down inside of us is forced up and out, not only for us to see, but sometimes everybody else too. That's exactly what happened when Peter, after three and a half years of training, still stole a sword and tried to murder somebody right in front of Jesus himself. So before Peter could be trusted to preach Pentecost to thousands of people, just around two months away, I need to pause right now and just point out something to every one of us. One of us. Peter's most powerful usage in the kingdom. The message Peter would preach that reached the most people at one time in his whole life, his greatest use in the kingdom by God was only a couple months after his greatest failure. And it wasn't just Peter thinking he failed. Peter blew it. And when Peter blew it, God put it in the record for every generation of humans after him to read all about it. 
And still yet, when Peter said, I don't know Jesus, when Peter swore he didn't know Him, and then when Peter swore about not knowing Him, just a couple months later, Jesus still uses Peter. Right. So we need to seek that in our heart. Uh -huh. Yeah. Maybe today I am at the worst I've ever been. Maybe today I did blow it worse than I ever did. And maybe everybody saw it. But if I will admit that, if I will repent of that, and if I will turn back to God and say, God, if you can still use me, use me, and then do what He wants me to do, you can only be a, you might just be that close to God using you greater than He ever has. Jesus. But before Peter could be trusted to preach to thousands of people, all that pride, all that confidence, all that dependence upon self had to go. How? I'm talking to all of us tonight now, and I'm telling you this is coming. Unbearable, unavoidable, inescapable pressure. Pressure designed by God not to bring out the best in us. Can you believe this? but to bring out the worst. Sometimes God ain't trying to bring out our best. Sometimes He's trying to bring out the worst. And sometimes when we feel like we failed God by letting that worst come out and we beat ourselves to death and we don't ever lift our head again and get back in the ball game, we completely miss out on what God intended that worst of us to be brought out for. God doesn't bring pressure on us to bring that worst out, to say, see, you can't do this. See, you can't teach kids. See, you can't sing and pray and preach the glory down. You've got this worst. You shouldn't be that way. That's not why God brings it up to the surface. God brings it up to the surface so we can say, see, now we can deal with this. Now we can fix this. God wants to bring that worst out sometimes so we can address it, deal with it, and get it out of the way because He's dealing with somebody we may not even know yet to bring them to us so we can be used by God to bring them to God. And He knows if He brings them here now while I still hide my worst deep down in here, new converts, pardon me, but it's the truth, brand new babies in God can wear you out. Yeah. They can wear you out. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. That's what we're for. We're here to be wore out. I'm not going to stand in front of God with half a tank. I ain't going to stand in front of God with a quarter of a tank. Up in Illinois, they had this commercial about a, a muffler company. It was called the Midas Man. And the whole commercial was this little jingle. And it showed this car, a cartoon of a car with smoke blowing out, coming across the, the finish line sideways, and the jingle I can still remember. Rattle, rattle, thunder, clatter, boom, boom, boom. Better call the Midas Man. And that car just went... That's exactly how I intend to finish my race. I want to come smoking out the back, three flat tires, and the fourth one only half full of air. I want the muffler to be gone. I want to come across sideways and rattle using every last ounce of gas I got and say, God, I gave it all I had. But the only way we can give it all we have is if we're honest about all we have. And I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes some of the things we have 
are even secret to us. Uh -huh. The Bible says the heart is deceitful. Yes. Desperately wicked. Mm -hmm. And it's deceitful above all things, yes. even the devil. So see, my heart can lie to me and say, man, you got it down pat, dude. You got rid of all of them things that might get in people's way. You got rid of all of them character traits that might slow somebody down in their progress in God. And the whole time my heart's lying to me and keeping that thing down there. But God will bring pressure. And guess what? Sometimes it is from the devil. I got Bible. But what the devil means for evil, God means for good. Here's my Bible for you. More Bible for you. As often as the case, God used the devil. Devil been nipping at your heels lately? Hear me. Please remember this. Sometimes the devil has more access to us, not because we have displeased God and weakened in our walk with God. Right. Uh oh. Right. Boy, this contradictory to Epstock Doctrine. Mm -hmm. Man made Epstock Doctrine. Sometimes the reason the devil has gained access in some areas of our life is not because our prayer life is down. It's not because we're doing something God don't like. Sometimes it can be because we're doing some stuff God does like, but there's some stuff deep down in here he don't like, and the only way that's going to come out is pressure. And do not be surprised if that pressure is not from within your own foxhole in your family or in your church family or in your circle of friends because there is no one that can cut you deeper and quicker That's right. than someone that has ultimate access. T-bone mm -hmm. hmm. steak tonight. As often as the case, God used the devil to fulfill his purpose and do it for him. Tell us so stupid. Jesus said, Peter... Satan desires to sift you like wheat. But what he didn't tell Peter was that whereas Satan wanted to sift him, Jesus needed him sifted. So he let him. How? All Peter's confidence in self disappeared after he denied Jesus for the third time in the same night and then somehow managed to make eye contact right. with him just before they drug him off to torture him some more. Hmm. Peter realized that even after three and a half years of training by the master himself, he still wasn't ready. Can you imagine the three days Peter had while Jesus was in the tomb? That's why some of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible are found in the section we read tonight. <laughs> when those ladies got down to that tomb and that angel said he ain't here no more, he went on ahead where he told all y'all he was going to go, he's risen, and then he said, go tell all his disciples and Peter. Three days. You know, Peter had to be thinking for three days, probably convinced himself, it'll never be the same again. I promised I didn't know him. I swore about it. And then when I denied him the third time, he looked me right in my eye when there was no one to help him. And I was the only one that could have. And I denied him anyway, and then he looked me right in the eye before they drug him off to kill him. It'll never be the same again. And God knew that. And when he sent that angel on that mission, he said, Hey, I got some women that are faithful. They ain't going to wait the daylight. You know how them women are. 
When that mama makes up her mind, mama's mind's made up. I wish to God the men in our country would get that toughness the women have. When you guys make your mind up, I don't even think about y'all. Once you tell me something, it's like, okay. If it don't happen, it's going to be a fire somewhere. I'm going to get 911. I ain't got to worry about it. The woman told me. Ain't that a shame? When God gave that assignment to that angel kitty, he said the women are going to be there. You need to hurry up and get down there early. They ain't going to wait till the sun comes up. Right. But when they get down there, remind them I'm risen. Tell them where I told them I was going to go. But then the last thing I want you to do is tell them, go tell Peter. Yes. I'm here tonight to tell Peter. Ha <laughs> ha! Woo! I'm here tonight to tell Peter your worst failure's not a failure after all! Uh -huh. That pressure you've been feeling from the devil ain't because you failed God, it's because you pleased God. And he's trying to draw that out of you so it can be addressed, confessed, and handled. Yes. Because your greatest use in the kingdom is on its way. Yes. yes. On its way! But you have to be willing to be sifted. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to stand with me because I, I, I'll talk about three hours and we can't do that. Kitty ain't ate all day and she's going to get hangry. <laughs> I, I'm just telling you right now. This whole principle has been a revelation to me. Just been poof, dropped on me, and it is for us. Yeah. It is for us. If you have been shifted, and those things have come to the top, and they've been things that have humiliated you, or that you're embarrassed to even confess that they're there, or you think, well, that shouldn't even be an issue anymore. I can't be pleasing to God if I'm still dealing with this, if I'm still struggling with this thing. I'm here tonight, sent from God, to give you a God word to tell you that that's not been brought to the surface because you failed God. It's been brought up there because God loves you. He don't want you to carry that anymore. He will help you fix that. And when you let Him fix that, he will use you in ways that will blow your mind. Amen. Peter could not have imagined. Right. Three days, Jesus ain't ever going to take me back. He ain't ever going to let me back in. He ain't ever going to use me the whole time. Jesus telling that angel, go tell Peter, go tell Peter, go tell Peter. I got a job for him in two months. Yep. But you have to be willing, first of all, to be shifted. When those things are brought to the surface, confess them, address them, fix them. Any way you can to fix them. God put people in your life to help you, help me. Now I'm going to end with this. Even Jesus had to be sifted. What? Are you ready for this? Twice. Twice. First time, Fasted 40 days in the wilderness. Who shows up? The devil. What the devil do? Tempted him. Three times. Why? What Jesus say? He told his disciples, he said, I gotta go away for a little while because the devil's coming and he's gonna find nothing in me. But see, God the Father knew that, yeah, I'm still in this this man, but there is still flesh here. 
Jesus still had His own will. That's why for His second sifting, oh boy, I feel the Holy Ghost. His second sifting was done in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was the end in Gethsemane? Pressure! Yeah. Why did the three fall asleep? He said, can't you pray with me even for one hour? It wasn't there sifting yet. You're alone when you're sifting. You can be standing hand in hand with the love of your life. And you can still feel all alone with the sifting pressure. And you can see things about yourself that you can't even share with somebody you've been married to and in love with for 30 years because it's humiliating to you to even admit that it's there. And you think they should, they're not going to believe I'm even dealing with that yet. I can't even open this up anymore. That's why Jesus had to go to Gethsemane. And it was pressure and pressure. And the three that were with him couldn't stay awake. It wasn't there. Gethsemane. It wasn't their sifting. It was Jesus's. Why did Jesus say at the second sifting? Father! Well, how many times have we prayed this prayer? If there's any other way, please let this thing pass from me, God. Please let there be another way to do this. I don't know if I can do this. And he came back and they were asleep. He woke up, prayed for me. And he went back again. This time he fell on his face. And he prayed again. And the Bible says his pressure was so, so crushing that he sweat. Drops of blood. And at the end of all that pressure, somewhere in that city, thing that had to be sifted out of Jesus was the flesh that said, I don't want to do that. And that's why at the end, when he sweat those great drops of blood, he said, Father, I can imagine tears running down his face, the blood right there, and with his face up embarrassed that he'd even asked to not fulfill God's will for himself. He said, Father, if there's no other way, not my will. Thine. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so tonight, I'm begging you to see this through the eyes of God. And it's, it is, there are people today that are still lost that we don't even know yet that depend on us. Not only admitting that flaw, that, that thing is, that pressure has brought these things to the surface, not only admitting them, but saying, okay, God, I'm embarrassed by this. I was just wanting here, but Lord, help me with it. Not my will. Thy will be done. And if you can use anything, Lord, use me. So I say again tonight, some of you have had things come to your mind during the course of this lesson that you recognize now has been sifting. Some of us have some things come to mind that some things, some actions, some behaviors, or some traits that have come to mind tonight that, that we are personally embarrassed about just between us and God, let alone anybody else. But now we, now, 
through the right eyes, we understand that these were brought to the surface, not only for our good, but for the good of people we haven't even laid eyes on yet. So if your sifting has already begun, first of all, I say to you that between your positioning and your harvest, there is a sifting. And I will say this, and this is not a back door to me. This is not a back door for me. This is scripture. I've given you Bible tonight, line upon line and precept upon precept. I'm telling you that this is the year of our harvest. This ain't just for the Russells and the Rodriguez's and well. Ray Pierce wants some harvest too right. now. Yep. But just like for all the rest of the families, for our family too, before, between that positioning and that harvest, there is a shifting. I, for one, I've done missed too many meals. I've done been honest about too many of my words to be embarrassed about any more pop-up. And I'm just going to say this because, well, you, you know my personality. What could be sadder for whatever my personal family harvest is to be delayed and even lost and have the reason not be because God wasn't going to do it? Have the reason not be because the devil stopped it, but have the reason be because I was unwilling to endure the sifting, because I was too prideful to admit the pressure had brought these things up, and then to ask forgiveness from God and to whoever that pressure had came out on? And then because I got too self-centered about my embarrassment of having failed like that, that I didn't stand back up and say, okay, God, if you're still willing, here I am. Wouldn't it be a shame if that was the only thing that held off the rapier harvest? Well, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to endure the sifting. Amen. If I have to endure sifting and pressure, for my children to come in here one day and talk in Portuguese for three hours, I'm going to do it. And when it happens, they can try to throw me out. Whatever our time allotment is, I'll just pay extra because I'm going to stay as long as it's going on. Amen. So I'm going to ask you tonight, wherever you are in this process, or even if this process ain't started for you, I'm going to ask you tonight, will you endure the, sh the sifting? Will you? And when it happens, please do me a favor as your brother and, and hubby. Please do me the favor. This is your brother. And as somebody that, that's working with you, we're a team. So when this thing happens, if it happens over there, or it happens somewhere, don't matter how or what, when it does, please don't, please don't disqualify yourself. Please don't send me a message and say, uh, um, Arliss, I've messed up so bad, man. I, I just need to, I can't do that. You're going to have to take me out. Please. And understand that when that happens, it's God's will. And it's God's will for you to reach out and say, hey, this is where I'm at. This is the sifting you told me about. And if this is what's got to be done, for Abby, and for Knox, and for my mama, and for Travis, for Mark, and Helen, for Anna, and Melody, and Isaac. But this is what's got to happen. 
Walk with me through it. Yes. Amen. So I'm going to ask you, if you come to the front, I'm going to pray. I'm going to lay my hands on you. won't give you whiplash, put in your face, or make you deaf. But if you'll come up here, put your hands to God, and let me pray for you. For wherever you are in that sifting, whether it's not begun yet, you're in the middle of it, now recognize what it is. God will give you strength tonight. And this unity that we have, this light that we're shining on this subject, means there's no darkness and it cannot hide anywhere. And we will not watch the enemy separate somebody out Amen. from the family and cause them to be so down on herself that they lose out with God. Amen. So I'm going to ask you if you want to, to come and let me pray for you.